This is where I could identify with Paul. <laughs> God. Using getting kicked in the nuts at work. Your wife is a lucky woman. Oh, yo. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Go ahead, lay down. I'll keep the drunks away. Welcome to They Coined It. Roberta, I'm setting up the parlor account for the podcast. <laughs> and uh, are we going with at TCI Madman Pod <laughs> like the others on parlor? Let's see. When I does this, let's when does this go, go live? For now. <laughs> you know, we'll, book, we'll bookmark it and we'll change it later if we need to. All right. Coiners. Uh, I don't, I don't know if you can hear the dog outside. Sorry. Um, we're recording here on January 9th. So I don't know if Parlor will still exist by the time you hear this one. I'm um, just asking. You know, you want to see. Yeah, look, you, know, you have to be on all the platforms. Sure. You have to be where the people are. How, how are people going to find you? So this is the episode where Betty's father has a stroke and she calls Don and they go down to visit. And that's kind of the. The crux of this. Yeah. This one, like, how often do we say, like, oh, this one, you know, it's not on my radar. And then you watch it and you're like blown away. Good episode. Solid. Lots of great stuff. Bottom third, bottom of the 13 of this season. for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's here's the thing. I mean, we have plenty to unpack and we are here to to unpack. It moves things along, though. When you look back there, it's it's consequential in its way. Yes. It's very transitional. Right. And I love that it gets I love that it gets Don on his way to LA cuz that's where that's where the shit comes down in LA. LA gets interesting uh for yeah. those who haven't seen yet. But yeah, um it was not my favorite. It didn't leave me, you know, with feelings. Like there wasn't no. I I do a I do a temperature check on feelings, on how I'm feeling. How do I how how am I moved? Am I emotionally affected? Am this isn't I going to do that, right? Left me cold. Well, spending spending that much time in a confined space with the Draper's shittiest mar- marriage will leave anybody <laughs> feeling a little bit cold. Well, that's There's- actually – let's get into it. The Inheritance, written by Lisa Albert, Marty Noxon, and Matthew Weiner, directed by – Marty Noxon of uh, much Buffy creds. Okay. Big, big, big Buffy creator. All right. Not, you know, uh, creative. That's our – Buffy mention of the episode. You're welcome. There'll be four more. <laughs> Direct <to> it. Directed by <laughs> Andrew sure. Bernstein. Original air date, October 5th, 2008. And it takes place the week of September 17th to 23rd, 1962. Okay. So, yeah. Draper Barrett. That's, um, has all the passion of a, uh, communist parade. Well, in fairness, it's not supposed to have passion at this moment. This oh is no, the moment, no, no, no! This, right. this, this, I was, I made, I made a note that that there seems to be some delight. I think on the part of let's call it Matthew Weiner or the writers or the whole team there, that at this point in the series, there is a kind of glee and delight. I think in marinating in the misery of that marriage that is is taking hold. Right? We linger at Betty's. You know, to, to put these two people who are separated physically separated and this whole uncertainty about the marriage and all the rancor between the two that now we're going to put them in this stuffy old house, Betty's dad, 
they hate the 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 new the new girlfriend. Oh, she's terrible. But we're going to stuff all this misery into this one confined space and spend half an episode there. That is not that is some kind of sadistic tendency. That's all I'm going to say. Like these people love exploring misery. So it's interesting because I didn't get that sense of confinement inside that marriage because the the episode moved to so many different rooms and places and scenes. And I didn't. All of which were stuffy and dark. All of which were stuffy and dark. Now I want to say about Gloria. God, Betty was right. I, Gloria is yeah, pretty, pretty terrible. I think, I think Gloria is clueless. I mean, she's a human being, and she's got her own point of view, and she's probably got her own insecurities and all of that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not dismissive of all of that, but she's, um, you know, she's a rough stepmother, or I don't remember if they're married or not. But to not call when strokes have happened, you're just not sure when Betty doesn't like her. If that's just Betty being a brat, and we know that Betty's a brat, but Gloria's pretty terrible. We take we take what Betty says with a grain of salt. Yes, and this is rather this validates it. What was interesting about that, what you're saying about the Draper's marriage, you've got William who doesn't want to be at his parents' house, and you've got Pete who doesn't want to be at his mother's house. The sm- just the smell, and I just thought it, that was interesting that you've got, and now you've got this Draper marriage within. One of these terrible, it's like there's all these terrible homes from somebody else's <laughs> perspective. There's like, right. there's, we're, there's all these places that nobody wants to be. Oh, yeah. That, that's for sure. We've got this overarching theme of inheritance, parents. What do you get from your parents? Mm-hmm. Um, children, trying to have children. What is legacy? What is a real child? Well, dealing with truth and your parents. Dealing with truth and your parents. Now, I have a fun one. Speaking of truth and your parents, Pete and Trudy in the in the it was a really great scene. Well, it was a really great Trudy scene where she's you know asking to adopt, pushing for an adoption, and she's just lovely in it. Really, Trudy's parents have a place in Rehoboth, Rehoboth Beach, Rehoboth, Delaware, is a big old gay town. It's not exclusively gay, but it's 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 not quite as exclusive as Provincetown, but it's it's a pretty yeah, gay. Yeah, no, it's 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 right. It's it's, it's, it's fairly gay. mixed because families go there a lot yeah, as well. But it's a yeah. big old gay. It's a fun, wonderful beach town, and their history of being a, uh, of having LGBT friendly spots goes back to the 1940s, and it made me wonder what exactly was in Trudy's father's box. <laughs> Right? I think that's a long way to go. <laughs> I do. I mean, it's interesting. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing incorrect about it. He chose Rehoboth is all I'm saying. Okay. He chose a house in Rehoboth. I, all right. There's no proof. That's all I got. It was just a fun one for me. <laughs> I thought that we had to get that in. <laughs> I don't know what that oh, means. Oh, that was my big, that was my big, <laughs> okay. that was my big connection oh. from last night. I was like, that's fun. Wow. All right. First of all, I love the scene in Pete's office with his brother where they're kind of talking about it, but not talking about it. And Pete is as open as these, this family seems to get with one another to say, you know, we're looking at adoption and blah, blah, blah. He sees it with Bud, who of course tells the mother and that leads to the fight at the end. But I think that's a sweet little scene between them. I right? like it. I mean, they're, they're yes. genuinely good brothers. They're, they're, they like each other. They respect each other. They have this common, you know, probably fairly wacky upbringing with these two two knuckleheads that raised them that gives them a unique perspective and a bond that that's a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. 
they seem very easy with each other. And Pete's easy with nobody. Yes. Yeah. I, I liked it too. I mean, I remember, I feel like in season one, we thought we weren't supposed to like Bud, but they do have a, a nice brother yeah, thing. I agree. Um, now, Bud's, Bud, do all the, does everybody's brother have a wife named Judy in this whole Judy series? Judy or Trudy. There's Judy, Judy, and- Because we got another Judy this episode. William's wife is That's right. Judy, who, by the way, she was lovely. She was super likable. Uh, yeah, she is. Right. Especially doing the- uh, Doing, doing the puzzle. The jigsaw, doing the jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> and yeah. bringing back that. Now, what is that called? Is that, what was that god awful thing called? Is it Etruscan? What, what is that? The Jardinaire? Jardinaire. That's the word I was oh, thinking. Oh, I can for. talk about a Jardinaire for a brief moment. Do they have them in Rehoboth Beach? Maybe we can tie all this in. <laughs> we had a set. We had a set, and they were not the same pattern at all, but they were identical size, scope. You either loved them or you hated them. I, I, or you didn't. Decide, but they were <laughs> very now, polarizing or not. I don't, right. I don't know if I loved or hated them. They were more attractive in their pattern. They were like a blue and white. They were just blue and white. They were like a dark blue on white china pattern, if you will. Um, and but that's, you, why, that's why I know There's that. No, they're not like an ashtray or anything like that. They're just. Oh, no, like, well, you, uh, we use them as planters. Okay. They're, they're a big like, jar on top okay. of a. My mom had a, a ton of plants. That, that one from. Uh, Betty's uh, seemed to be from the wasp age. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right? It was. It was <laughs> quite a, quite a, quite a, an artifact. I think it's the nature of this episode that makes it a little hard for us to sort of light on something. But let's let's kind of go back in into the sequence of things, right? So we open with we've got this opening scene where we are now understanding that there's a trip happening right at the office and there's everybody you know they're they're prepping for this this trip to L.A. to the uh, what was it called? The rocket, oh, the rocket show, fair. The, the, the rocket, rocket fair. fair. I love Peggy's description, and it's not in Don's office when they're all talking, but when she's talking to among the the other uh, workers, she's like, "All that sunshine, people don't work out there," which <laughs> is exactly. Listen, I love the West Coast, but it's exactly what people in New York think about LA. Is like they're not working. They get up so late, you know, which of course they don't, but like, you know, it's it's noon before they hit the office. Like, um, there is some serious judgment being laid down from East Coast to West Coast. Peggy kind of nails that perfectly. And I don't know. I've I've heard a few times that that's true, not in the they don't work, but, you know, certainly everybody says California, everything's more casual. Laid back culture. No question. Laid back culture. I mean, I imagine now everybody's got their laptops outside with them and they're doing a lot of work outside. I do. I wonder... You know, I wonder if there was some truth to that. There's this wonderful little uh, Mad Many punchline kind of subtle thing where the scene in that office ends with nobody has read anything that Peggy has prepared for them to read. <laughs> right. Right? She's, she's laid it out. The whole business proposition is is to to, to the letter. Yeah. And they haven't they haven't looked. They at haven't it. touched it. Perfect. So the next thing you see is Pete laying in bed reading. And it's this wonderful psych out where you kind of, if you're thinking about it, you assume he's reading, he's getting himself prepared for the trip, but he's actually looking at an LA travel brochure. <laughs> it's it's as it's as good an example of male privilege as ever, right? Because Peggy is the one who should go because she will be the most productive in LA if she were to go on that trip. But there's no way they'd send her. So well, because they, she's not going to be, they won't take her golfing, and they won't take her seriously. So. Here's the one with all the, you know, with all the plans and the, and the know-how and everyone else has got their thumb up their ass. Yeah. So then again, we've got that, the scene between Trudy and Pete and the the standout line for me was 
we're not related by blood and you love me, which I, I really thought that was a, a, a touching line and, and something you can look at in life. And again, in this theme of inheritance. What are the limits or constraints of blood? And where does it kind of end or begin or how far does it go? And is inheritance, you know, through the ages, inheritance and and legacy and all of that has been considered a blood thing, but also can't you just create it with your word? That's right. Who decides? Exactly. And she talks about, you know, once you see the baby and so cute and you're going to fall in love. and And that's certainly valid. Usually happens most times. Then you see how close Pete is with his folks and it's like... You know, I love the kiss. You see the kiss from Pete to his mom? The cheeks no, I didn't touch. Catch it. It's a parallel. <laughs> their faces go it's parallel. It's just a cheek, a cheek swipe. Right. The skull bones are a parallel and the cheeks touch, but lips don't touch anything. It was a Protestant makeout. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as adults who have, you have children, I've known a bunch. I'm related to a few. You know, the relationships change. They are... Um, easiest to love purely before they talk. <laughs> That's why we love our pets. <laughs> if our pets talked, we'd hate them. Love becomes something you need to generate. That that happens in marriages, that happens with with your kids, that happen, you know, it's it's it it's it's easy to love when it's easy, right? That's called the honeymoon phase, right? It's easy to love when it's like oh, I wouldn't even look at someone else. Well, that's the easy part. Right. The <laughs> it, the difficult part is when you do look, right? And then you make a choice and, and loving a kid who is being terrible becomes a, something you need to generate. So it's just this whole world of what are these relationships and how do they go on? But in this episode, we see most of it from, from the grown up children's side, right? We see yes, it from, from Pete and Bud's side and we see it from Betty's side. And, you know, the, the, the process of understanding that your parents are not just getting old, but getting sick and, could go through things that make them suffer. And, you know, that the scene at the at the dining room table, right, at breakfast, where the dad completely thinks Betty's his wife, that is that is an emotionally tough thing to that that is a that is a threshold that is really tough to just walk through. And you have no choice. You're just you're dragged through it. It was more than that he thought she was his wife, because there were people around. He would not have treated Ruth in that way, in front of people at any point. We like to think, right. Yeah, I don't think there was an impropriety about him as a younger man. What we see in his behavior, what we see in his demeanor and, and what he says to Don is the, the filters are off. And that definitely can come with different versions of dementia is is people get harder to be with, not just because it's it's disorienting and we don't know where they are because they don't know where they are, but also because they become meaner and that that happens. The person you love becomes unpleasant and unpredictable. And there's a there's a point and my my father experienced dementia and, and we went through it with him. And the the point you get to is you stop expecting the person you used to know to be there. And you're reluctant to do it because who who it's not that self-explanatory. You want the person that you grow up with to be there, but there's a point where you have to either either I'm either going to shut that out and I'm not going to visit, I'm not going to provide any care, I'm not going to be a part of their lives, or you say, okay, I I I need to steal myself for what's whatever's behind that door when I when I walk in, 
So now my expectation is that person's not going to be there. And whoever's there is who I'm going to deal with for the next whatever, three hours, two hours, one hour, 20 minutes that, that, that you, you prepare yourself for. And that's, you know, B- Betty's just at the leading edge. Betty and her brother are just at the leading edge of that. And of course, not, none of this was really known at the time. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of references to him being very sick. So perhaps they realized that he w- he may not be alive much longer, whatever. Well, she went she went right to I'm an orphan, which was a right. bit of a leap. <laughs> well, that's also Betty's dramatic, you know, side of it of it coming out. But um, but I'm most fascinated with all these references to the mother who's still, you know, less than three years gone. Literally looming large, right? <laughs> Literally looming over <laughs> the the proceedings, and and you have to have some sympathy for Gloria in that respect. Like, who the hell wants to move into that situation now? Is she handling it as best she can? You know, okay, you want to give her some slack, but maybe expect more of a grown up. But regardless, you know, these kids are going to be measuring, even if the husband's not. These kids are going to be measuring whoever's taking care of their dad against that that yardstick, and that's no fun. That's tough. And what you know, what you were saying about the stealing yourself, that's sort of the final version of generating your own love in in the face of that's right. It doesn't feel like anything like what was what was familiar. Now there's another Sopranos parallel here that's worth mentioning, which is the Sopranos did something very innovative for its time, which is is very similar to what we see in this starting to see in this episode, which is really show in a raw unvarnished way what dementia can look like and look, feel like and be like for those around it. You know, Uncle Junior was this character in Sopranos who was a major character and he goes, he loses it at a certain point in the series. You realize that it gives the, the writers license to make the person seem wise and losing his marbles at the same time. <laughs> and so it, you know, it, it could be connected to something or not connected to something. They explore dementia through this very real lens, which is some days they're perfectly fine. Some days they might be just perfectly themselves and say things that make sense. And then the next day they might appear to be themselves and appear to be saying things that make sense, but they've, they're totally in la la land and you can't rely on that character anymore for what they're saying. We look at Gene as someone who's beginning to, to show dementia. And sometimes he's okay, and sometimes he's not. So you don't know what's really inside of that character of Gene, who we don't know very well. So when he yells at Don, that's something Gene probably thought going back to the wedding. Nobody has what you have. You act like it's nothing. My daughter's a princess, you know that? Dinner time. What's going on? He has no people. You can't trust a person like that. Daddy. The filter is off. The filter's gone, right. So now we finally get what Gene has always thought of Don and what we assume is has never been articulated by him. And is a legitimate feeling of Gene's, right. But you can't say that about how he's acting towards Betty, right? We're, right. That, that, that we want to dismiss as not being legitimate. So you have no idea what's real, what's not, what's in the past, what's in the present. It's all, and that's something that with Uncle Junior in Sopranos, we 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 experienced as as viewers of that show. So, so I know, I'm just writing down yeah. Sopranos one, Buffy one. Okay, fair enough. All right. Yeah. Okay. See, we see where we are at the end. No, it's good. Um, 
yeah, two totally different manifestations of of Gene's dementia. Even in the one where he thinks Betty is Ruth, he's also got his filters off. That was actually both in that moment. Yeah. He had he earlier we saw him think she was Ruth. Later at the breakfast, we see a whole a shitstorm version of everything terrible that, you know. Daddy used to find us for small talk, remember? Conversation is an art. Well, it is. So just going back to how we got here is Betty calling Don. Now, it isn't really clear until later, and it's certainly never clear to Don, why Betty calls Don. Betty calls Don for a ride and to save face. Meaning that she's not prepared to share with her family that they're separated. Yes. But we don't know that at the beginning, and Don is obviously never clear about it. Why does Betty call Don felt like, oh shit, my father is sick, Don, I need you. Either way, it lands, and we do know where it lands. For Betty, From Betty's perspective, it is purely practical. I mean, she could have said, I'm taking the train down and I need you to watch the kids for two days. I mean, he, he responds with, I'll come get you. We'll take the, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go down, blah, blah, blah. I'm actually, now, I'm wondering now if she also didn't know why she was calling him. I think that's probably right. Yes. Yeah. I think she was calling him maybe originally having not distinguished that it was 100% for pretending, or even if she was telling herself that it was 100% for pretending, she got real clear real fast that his comfort was not comforting to her, right? There was that moment, particularly at the at the dining room table uh, at that breakfast, when this really horrible moment happened and Don touches her and she, you can just see yeah, her. Yeah, recoils. Also, being touched in that moment was maybe a little triggering for her having just been groped by her own father. But it was Don and, and, her, and he is not comforting to her. It's kind of a tie back to... You know, when Pete's dad died and Don's advice was you go home and be with your family, it's what you do. Is it what you would do? Yes. We said at the time, like, that's a very human sort of, here's the way you handle these things. I think Betty has the same kind of instinct, which is I'm going to call Don, I'm going to call my husband, and and whatever, however this gets handled by me as a daughter um, is going to involve Don. So I'm going to call Don, I'm going to make him aware. She didn't, like, say, here's what I need you to do. He he was the man with the plan. I think she was accepting of it, maybe a little begrudgingly, but she was accepting of it. And okay, I, if the alternative is me going down and having to explain why Don's not here, let me just b- grin and bear it, you know, through all this. I don't know when we stopped wearing um, sports jackets and ties every time we went to- For breakfast. Our in-law's house or downstairs for breakfast or what that was. I mean- Everybody had jackets and ties on wild, right? at every point of the way. And that was a little disturbing. As I've mentioned on, on this very podcast, I mean, I haven't really worn a bra since February. Okay. Everyone handles or everything shoes. a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, we've come a long way, right? We're a more casual nation, for sure. This marriage is in limbo. This marriage is in between... In between the worlds. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not, That's it's right. not a marriage. It's not a separation. It's not in anything. There's no speaking of it. Don doesn't know where the fuck he fits in. Betty kind of knows where he fits in, but she's still, she's not speaking of it. So like this marriage being sort of in a, in a limbo, in a dream state, the dreams, dreams and dreaminess is a huge 
theme in this episode. We we talked about this again back in our season one wrap up with Matt Zoller Sites extensively that there are moments in this show, and I'm pretty sure in The Sopranos too, but I wouldn't know. I'll write one down for That's The Sopranos, for you, but that was Roberta. mine. That was you brought that up. <laughs> that there are a lot of scenes in the show that um you can't tell if it's a dream or not. You can't tell if it's real or not. And his conclusion is it kind of ends up not mattering. But there's a bunch of those. There's a bunch of moments in this show, in this episode, where you're like, wait, what is this happening? And I think the the biggest one is is the sex. Like, it was filmed really weird. You're looking down from the bed on them. They're really tiny on the floor and the bed is giant. And it's a ton of misdirection. She gives him the coldest shoulder possible by handing him that... <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. comforter, that discomforter uh, for him to sleep with <laughs> that, um, you know, so he's miserable. He's on the floor. He's on that focaccia pillow. Like everything's horrible. And then she's coming down for, for some midnight nookie. It was interesting watching them get undressed in front of each other. They, they wasn't, there wasn't the like Rachel, there wasn't the Rachel to Ross turn your back. They also didn't fully get, you know, nobody got naked, but they. No. But that's the misery that I was talking about. Yes. No, it was a perfect <laughs> illustration of that right. marriage, exactly where that no, marriage 109 was. 109 seconds of a show without dialogue of these two separated married people getting undressed is the definition of languishing in misery. Like, you don't have to show that, but somebody chose to. Yeah, you really don't. Like, that is just like... I don't know. Somebody was in like just a bad place in their lives when they decided to do that because that is a real exploration. I mean, do you know what I mean? Like it's a show. People talk. Things have to move, but we're going to watch these two people get undressed and they hate each other. No, they don't hate each other, but they don't hate each other. I mean, what's more miserable if you're Don? You are separated from your wife. She's kicked you out of your house. You don't see your kids. You're making up lies to your kids. You're doing all this stuff. Now you have to, and you know why he doesn't, he doesn't go kicking and screaming. He knows what the right thing to do is. He takes Betty down there. He's acting like the husband, but inside you're miserable and you're getting all this bullshit from the father and you're just in this miserable place and go sleep on the floor. So they've perfectly drawn out this <laughs> this illustration of uh, pure hell. As to the did they or didn't they, to, again, if we go back, Matt's All Our Sight says it doesn't matter. It started looking very dreamlike and then it ended looking a little more real. And then the only evidence we have right now is that he, he went to sleep with a t-shirt on. He woke up without his t-shirt on. Now, you can take things off in the middle of the night because you're because you're warm and you do warm yeah, up when you I sleep. Think that's but that's that, hard to put pin anything it's, on. It is. Here's what I pin something on: when he get when they come home and they walk through the front door, his assumption he wants to act like it's normal, and that's not just because they acted like like husband and wife for a couple of days in front of her family. It's because they slept together the night before. Yeah. yeah. That that's what gives him the presumption of let me go take a shower and you know back to normal dawn. I think they did, but it's just I'm just I'm just sort of playing all the all the advocates here. Well, let's see if anything comes. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on to post the visit to Betty's father's, there's the the scene with Viola. I love that Don knows her, like knows how important she is. Yes. Right. She she yes yes. The the one bit of warmth in that house is her. And that relationship, and and it's um, again, who who is family? 
Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Betty admires her mother, but I, I guarantee that her mother was not a ball of warmth. Not a hugger. Not a... <laughs> Right. Not a so she was a handsome woman. I mean, she, she was not, she didn't describe, you know. So, um, and again, in, in the world of inheritance, what did Betty inherit from her own mother? Is that warmth as a mother? Yeah. Right. That maternal <laughs> right. instinct. But there's Viola. You're giving me your temper. Well, that's, that's saying a lot with one line, right? That's saying, I've known you since you were in diapers and you, you're, and I'm not going to put up with your crap. But I can also talk to you this way, even though technically I work for you. And all of that, it's all there. I don't know if she's nanny slash maid or whatever the exact, you know, sort of role title is. But yeah, there's a, a familiarity and a warmth in that kind of a comment. There was a lot of love about that scene. But Betty finally just crying. Mm-hmm. Like a, like a gen, like she's, well, we don't see her crying much at home, mm-hmm. right? She's She always looks like she's cried out, even though she probably hasn't cried in a while, right? She just has that look of like, there's no more tears to give, whether or not she's even given them. But this was a, a more childlike, mm-hmm. a more curling up in someone's arms kind of crying. And she's earned it. This is a lot. She's going through a lot. Right, right. It, and just that line about, you know, he's very, very sick. And she says, I, uh, you know, you don't know how nice it is to hear someone say that. That's right. That's more truth telling, right? She's not getting the truth from Gloria and always oh, fine or what's oh, a few strokes or <laughs> it's, but she's like, I was there when the doctor talked to him and it's not going to get better. And he's sick and this is what you're dealing with and you're the daughter and all the rest. That Viola would be the one in that house to provide not only warmth, but truth for a character. Spoiler, we don't see <laughs> we don't see more of Viola, of, of, of Viola at all, which is a pity. But w- with that, you're getting warmth and you're getting truth, and and that's a very rare thing, I think, in Betty's world right now to be getting. And then, what did she say about out there? Something along the lines of "out there, everything's all right," and Betty's like, "No, <laughs> out there, everything's not all right," and that's. Right here, B- Betty is someone that is dealing with really being a grown-up. Mm-hmm. And I think we see a lot of that in, that in this episode, naturally, about someone's parent being sick. Is You grow up kind of quickly at the, those moments. And she's dealing with that, and she's having it told to her in this blunt way where no one else really will. And and she, when she goes home, you, you, you don't return from that trip the same person. You just can't. You're not the same person. So this is a little bit of that passage, I think, for Betty. And it goes back to what you were saying about the stuffiness, right? And the, the dark, the, the, you know, and the, all these all these parents' homes being these these dark, Tombs. terrible, yeah. stuffy places. You've got the out there versus the in here. You've got the, um, first of all, William coming in through that window, I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, William was great. I thought that casting was great. Like, <laughs> he, he, he great. looked just like Betty, but not as attractive in any universe and just that kind of snottiness, but I really liked him anyway. In this episode. In this episode. Well, that's all. This is the episode we're talking about. (laughs) So when William came in the window, he actually said, it's like a tomb in here. And then Gloria comes in and closes the window. I'm encapsulating you in your tomb now. (laughs) Exactly. So we're back now from from the visit. Uh, Don has dropped Betty off. Betty has said, no, 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 go home. And 
and it feels like the episode should be over and it's not. And let's take a quick break <laughs> and we'll come back and do the whole other part. Whole other piece of the episode. Like like some other episodes, you mentioned Marriage of Figaro. This one kind of has like this bifurcated feel, right? We spend the first half and mostly in Philly and that whole drama of, of Betty and Don and the marriage and Betty's dad. But once we get back and she gives him the brush off in their foyer, Betty's kind of on her own at the house. She's doing that. Don goes back into the office and their worlds kind of separate again. Let's talk about Don first. So Don comes in. The first thing he sees on, I guess it's Joan's desk, is this brochure for L.A. <laughs> and the the light bulb goes off on Donnie's, above Donnie's head. I mean, that's when he decided to go. Well, I'm not sure um, because I think there's something else significant that happens that that becomes a little bit of a last draw. But even before that, the the dreaminess, the dreamlike quality, I think we see a bunch more of it in in part two oh, in this yeah, in this sure, part. Yeah. So the first thing is he walks into what seems like an empty office, and and that's weird dreamy and, and, dream, weird. and yep, dreamy. Totally. And then it ends up being um, Harry's baby shower, shower, right? Which is this bizarre, absurd thing. So that whole party is an interesting, uh, a whole bunch of things happening in there. Yeah. Like just walking away from Don for a second, if we could, we've got, you see it in the first scene and then you come back to it way more. And the second scene is drunk Hildy. Back in the days when a good baby shower could be deeply misogynistic. Who doesn't hanker for those? Looting the office for, for all the gifts, right? Here's your, here's your luckies. Here's your- well, that plus just the playboys and you're not going to be touched and like, and the look on Joan's face with, with some of those rejoinders is sort of like, you fucking asshole. Like, it's just really great. You got a little touch of, of Pete trying to be a little something with Peggy and she's just like, whatever. And then we get more of that in the, in the scene right. with them later. But to me, the subtle game changer of this event, Burt Cooper's, <laughs> Burt Cooper's moment aside. Yeah. That's <laughs> real. Oh, it's great. Was um totally plausible, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Hundred <laughs> percent. He's completely not connected to anything happening in the office. <laughs> so they yeah. That was a sincere wish of happy birthday. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> to someone. Whatever. <laughs> not even sure. Doesn't matter. Um but to me the 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 pivotal in this scene is the Tiffany gift from quote unquote <laughs> right, Jane. <laughs> because we then get Don is like, I'm out of this room. And then Joan comes with him and they yeah. go do business. And that's, that's when he, he says, I'm going to LA. Now you might be right. He may have decided in that first brochure moment, but if he hadn't decided and he was on the edge of deciding that Tiffany gift <laughs> sent him over. <laughs> that's a good point. I'm, Sealed the deal. I'm watching the scene. I'm watching when Roger comes in and, and, and more visibly Joan is not ha- now Joan's back is to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She can be more visible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the two of them have completely had it with them. But that's what I'm yeah. saying. I'm watching, I'm watching it and I'm noticing Joan. I'm like, Joan is furious. She fucking hates him, of course. And then, but it's at the end, I was like, oh, that's right. Don really hates him too right now. <laughs> I mean, they both got deeply fucked over, deeply, more deeply betrayed. I mean, Don, it's his marriage that got toyed with like, like a cat batting around a something a cat bats around. 
Anyway, I just think that I think that Tiffany gift was right. <laughs> I think I think the, was a real the seed was planted on. earlier, and then that definitely sealed the deal. Yeah, for sure, for sure, good idea. <laughs> That's really good. Um, and, and it was it was fun just to see everyone's reactions. Oh, I'm sure it's from Roger too. Like now, it's like the whole office scandal, right? Now it's out, right? And that's we haven't seen that. We've no. you know we've seen so many people screwing we, so many people, but we, we just haven't saw seen Hurricane it. Mona. That was it, you know. Right, and Jane's off his desk, and now Jane and Roger are a thing, and <laughs> everyone knows it. Nobody's pretending not to know it. That's a big deal. But the ripples they be rippling. Look, I have to go. Why? What is so important? It's a convention. I'm not allowed to talk about it. Let's back up to Paul and Sheila. But I really want to talk about Paul after he gets bumped off the... <laughs> That's what I want to talk about. <laughs> so, okay. You know what a Paul fan I've been all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is where that ends. Yeah. This episode is where that... There's no more pretending. And Paul is such a motherfucking piece of shit. See, I think this I, is... I, but I think he's most human in this episode. Valid. I think this is the... Fair. This is the most realistic... <laughs> this is where I'm not with him, but I'm, I can identify with him a lot. Danielle Ortiz's performance again. Now here she's with her little pillbox hat the and coming in the sweetest office. Sweetest pie. Sweet, but and tough, right? She's yeah. like, what do you mean you're not coming with? This is important. What are you talking about? Right. But my favorite, favorite, favorite moment is on the elevator. Hollis, the elevator operator. Yeah. Good morning, Mr. Kinsey. Hollis. Oh, right. Oh, this performative crap. How many times have I told you it's Paul? Right. Zero. <laughs> this is my girlfriend. She right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I thought that was Ugh. hilarious. Just. And that is where I can cut him no slack. But but that's where you're you've been cutting him too much slack all along because that's been Paul. That's totally consistent. There's nothing totally new right. about any 100%. of that. percent For those of us paying attention, that was Paul all along, <laughs> except for Roberta. Michael Gladys is so nice and so and I don't know. I always and but I mean obviously I liked the character. Mm -hmm. I unwarrantedly liked the character long before I ever got to meet him. It's fair it's, fair yeah. enough. I did. Um so yeah, so so that's the the backstory to Paul's trip is that he's going to LA instead of being a freedom rider, which <laughs> we we get a glimpse of that later, but we'll let's let's take our time. <laughs> Oh, white people. So that's who Don's bumping from the trip when he's sitting with Joan. Which was a dick move. Well, yeah, but Don being in the hell that he's in takes great precedence over him fucking caring about Paul getting to go to L.A. Paul was lucky enough to be on that list to go to begin with. So the fact that he got bumped, nobody's crying. Well, they just lost Freddie. And I don't know whose account was whose account, but- Freddie was much more senior level. They play kind of fast and loose here between like creative and the account team because I don't even know why creative would be going out there to begin with. <laughs> to listen. Okay. Absolutely. It's not just account that travels. Fair enough. I guess Freddie maybe would go, but but yeah. I would think Freddie would go because he he does have a good ear and he's great with clients. He golfs, he this, he that. He just until he pees himself. Okay. So they lost Freddie. And I love the line, by the way, when- Roger's in Don's office and he says, well, Pete has to go. I just held his hand through 30 phone calls. Like, that's just a great sort of detail <laughs> based on that 
Pete and Paul having no idea what the what the game plan is anyway, not reading Peggy's Peggy's memo and everything else, but like everyone's excited to go out to LA. No one's prepared. We've all taken business trips. No, no, you know, you gotta prepare. You gotta be like ready to go. You gotta lay the tracks. You gotta you gotta have a game because plan. Because you're gonna be disoriented by the traveling. Like you're gonna, you know, like you can't right. you know, when you walk into your office every day, you can kind of wing it sometimes because you're not thinking about, well, where's my desk and where do I live? Right. So <laughs> But yeah, so a thick move, he he pulls Paul off of it. Joan, in her most delighted moment we've seen (laughs) in a while. She's had a tough month. Right. Give her this. Delivers that news. Loves it. I'll need your ticket and your- Badges. Badges, exactly, for the the convention. I mean, she just, she said, and it did it in front of everybody. I mean, she, it was wonderful. Pure delight in in her doing that. But that scene after, that when (laughs) when Paul calls Sheila. (laughs) Very funny. This is where- I could identify with Paul. <laughs> God. Using getting kicked in the nuts at work. Your wife is a lucky woman. <laughs> oh, yo. God, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> but no, it's so human to get kicked in the nuts at work and feel like shit and have the rug pulled out from under you in general. The saving grace of your soul is to use it to make yourself look like a hero to your girlfriend. Right? Like that's the, that's the, I'm doing this for us, baby. You know, that kind of thing. And for the cause. Oh, the cause. My guy will be arm in arm. We have to, we will take a stand. No, no, no. Don't worry. I, I, listen, I told them it has to be this way. And it's just like, who can identify with that? Who among us? (laughs) Chicken shit into chicken salad, right? I mean, but it's not even like anybody's going to know. It's just for his own, I don't know, aggrandizement, I guess. Is that the right word? I'm not sure. He's only making himself feel better. And then, you know, those poor people on the bus who have to sit with him. You know, going through the whole exchange with Don gets the, the button of Paul being a um, self-serving slime bag, which is really fun. Hey, Shiva, it's me. No, I know that. And I want you to know I've thought about it. Let me finish. I'm going to stand there arm in arm with you and make a stand. It's not just about you and me. I know that. No one's been shot lately, okay? I love you too, baby. Pete calls Peggy over. He's playing at her sympathies and she's sort of like, where are you going with this? Like she's kind of got a, she's kind of got a no look in her eyes. And then at one point, the look in her eyes changes. This scene reminded me of that last scene where of like, I I can't believe I'm in this, I'm having this conversation. Right. Yeah. There's a little of that. Yeah. Right. And that was the look, the look where it was, it wasn't quite that angry and incredulous, but it was just Well, she realizes that he's talking to himself. And he thinks he's talking to her. He thinks this is the, uh, killed the, killed, killed the bear and cooked the dinner speech. Yes. He thinks that's what's going on. And it's not. And part of the look in her eyes is a little bit of, as a little pity. Is a little just like I see, like you're you're trying yeah, this, and right. it's just, we're not that doing this. That moment is gone. That ship has sailed. That moment is and, so and, gone. And I thought it was great how it was a wonderful way of show, like the way she's kind of parent, batting everything back to him. Like, you know, I'm sure everything will be fine. I know it's tough. I'm sorry. You know, just the whole thing with this dad. But she's keeping herself at arm's length. It's where you see her. Okay, she's got this fashionable dress on. 
Her hair is different. It's one of my favorite Peggy dresses, the black and white checked. You know, Peggy has a Peggy has a history with plaids and there's a there's an assumption often that she sews her own clothes. This is definitely a more stylish, mm-hmm. a more form-fitting, a more grown-up, more grown to up. your point, plaid that looks purchased. <laughs> but we've seen all the steps to get there. So we know it's earned. Yes. We feel good about Peggy when we see this, when we recognize this. So she's looking better than she has. She can have this conversation with Pete without falling into the vortex of Pete Campbell. She can kind of keep him at arm's length and be her own person. But we know how earned that is. We know how hard she's had to work to get there. The Bobby Barrett's and the Joan and the, and all of this. And the Pete. Michigas. And the baby. And the, oh, and yeah, and giving up a baby, right. He's he's always whining about his his status as a as a married person whose wife keeps bugging him for a baby. And she's like, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Everything's so easy for you. It's not easy for anyone, Pete. Beautiful line. And it reminded me too of Anita, of what her sister, how her sister sees her. Everything's so easy for you. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. People keep throwing that on Peggy. Right. And I, and Peggy's like- The fuck are you talking about? <laughs> stop right. saying that. Nothing is easy for me, you know? No, I think, I think it's, that is, that's a great, that's a great connector. Um, but it's true. But I think with regard to their relationship, it's when she starts to- disassociate from whatever this Pete Peggy thing is. I mean, they'll always have whatever it is there is, but it's not, it doesn't have a life of its own anymore. It kind of is what it was. It's in the past. And I think she sees that and he probably doesn't. Well, he doesn't see her. He sees extensions of him. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, he goes into this whole non sequitur bit with the baby. No fucking clue. But it's it's the way a teenager talks. She sees the whole thing. He sees the like, he looks at her every once in a while, like, oh, Peggy's so nice to me, or Peggy can be so nice to me. And she's like, yeah, this is the guy who dumped on me how many times? Yeah, and glared at me when I came into the club. You know, tried to keep me off accounts and like that. Yeah. So fuck Pete Campbell. So fuck Pete Campbell. Hash, that's um, hashtag fuck Pete. We need to use Do they hashtag use hashtags on Parlor? I think we have to make, have to find out to put that on there. I feel like hashtag fuck Pete Campbell would not do well on Parlor. Okay. Actually, they're they're probably like I think for Parlor we'll use hashtag yay Pete Campbell. <laughs> the extent they know who Pete Campbell is, right? <laughs> More Pete Campbell. Oh, those are, are you kidding me? Those are the guys. I'm sorry. Those are the guys who would who didn't last long as commenters on our blog because <laughs> right, we, right. we had no tolerance for for right. incels. But it was like I love this show. I love when it was like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't anyway. Which brings us, of course, to, you know, so the thing about being a divorced, she's not divorced. The thing about being a woman on your own in the suburbs is sometimes things go bump in the night. You know, you're the one now who's got to kill the bugs, right? So like she hears a sound outside, Betty Draper, back in Austining, and she's nervous, but there's nobody to deal with it. So she locks the door and she goes to bed. Finishes her wine and goes to bed. <laughs> And and actually they they're home a day early. Yeah. Right? Joan's like, Oh, you're you're here a day early. Yeah. He's like, Yeah, I'm not staying. They cut the trip short, interestingly. Oh, so she's there by herself of, for that evening. She's there by herself. We see later the kids get brought home, but that was always the plan. It's just that she's now even back a day early. So she's got the house to herself and she's not unhappy about that. The next morning. <laughs> you know, it's that, that miniature house that Don built in Marriage of Figaro. The P L A Y H O U S E. That that one. I forget how she. I guess oh, uh, 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 Polly's uh, scraping at it. And who's in there? But glad a disheveled, <laughs> a disheveled Glenn Bishop. 
<laughs> um, hiding out in the playhouse. And the playhouse, remember, in Fernando Figaro was this little set piece where we heard the kids all playing like they're grownups and talking like they hear their parents talk and modeling the behavior. And You're right. Oh, good one. It was a little house of divorce. It was a little house of pending divorce, for sure. <laughs> a little house of uh, child payments. You invented the car. I like sleeping on the couch. I don't like your tongue. Take your shoes off. And well, she finds, she finds Glenn and questions him and, and brings him in and, and all this. And there's this, um, I don't know, it, it kind of reignites this kinship between Betty and Glenn. You know, th- this time through, it is portrayed as sweet and caring and um, innocent in its way. That their connection, I think, is forged even further, these two, for the for the time being. They're sharing a sandwich. Well, first of all, I mean, let's look at it from the standpoint of He's like a little, a little man, a little, a little grown up coming home from work. He gives her his bag. Here, honey. Oh, it's wild. <laughs> He's talking about these <laughs> men that, that, that date his mom. They give me stuff. It's a little Pan Am bag or whatever, but he hands it to Betty like it's his briefcase. Here, honey, put this away from me. Make me a drink, which she does. She makes him a sandwich and, and the chocolate milk or whatever. I want to go back to just the, the look on her face when she sees him. Mm. I was, I know it all, I know it gets weird. I know this is where it goes, but her initial face was a smile. There wasn't any look on her face of concern. She went uncomfortably fast for my taste into, oh, yay. He eventually says, I'm here to rescue you. And she has a look like she's being saved. From the get-go, which is bizarre. The first thing he says is, can I use the bathroom? What's he been doing all week? I don't want to know. That's a valid question. But this is more dream sequence. By the time they get to that kind of dialogue of... And it's weird. It's almost like he's in the dream and she's not. I'll tell you why. It's, I'm here to rescue you. And she said, and and what's the grown-up answer to that? She she responds in in an appropriately kind of patronizing way. Right? Did you bring your cape? Kind of like, you know, I'll play along. Right, right, right. But she's not like, she's not saying, oh my God, you have no idea how long I've waited for you to, you know, it was, it was, it was an appropriate, like, whereas it started out inappropriate. Can I have your hair? Here you go. Right. Right. <laughs> That's inappropriate. There was the like, my mom doesn't understand us kind of thing. And she's like, she doesn't, you know, and she didn't say it like that, no. but still. <laughs> right. But there's this dreaminess quality to what really is going on here, and is this kid for real, and is this really happening? So we can put that in that bucket for sure. But at the same time, I see Betty as being the grounded one all along. If you replay it and kind of look at it from the standpoint of, all right, whose dream is this? It's not Betty's. It's not Betty's. I think that she – well, first of all, I think the journey that she's been on with Don – and the night to remember and staying up and the hell that she's put herself through to try and, you know, catch him cheating, but she still believes him and she's got her spine. And I think she's talking about stealing herself. I think she's steeled herself for reality in a way that she hadn't been ever her whole life. So when this kid comes along, she can play along. And I think she genuinely has an affection for Glenn. She, she's not the same person, she, but she's not the same person who knocked on the car window to say, you know, everything is so horrible and grownups are are miserable and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's her anymore. 
she's taken actions in her life and she has started speaking, going back to what you're saying, she started speaking the truth. She hasn't spoken it to everyone, but she has spoken it to Don and she keeps, and she keeps sticking with that. And you're right. You know, part of, part of what makes the whole thing, the whole sequence, and just to just to be clear, for in case, case there's any confusion for our listeners, you're not saying it was a dream. It was Glenn's dream. It just had a dream quality. Dream is, uh, the, same, the same way the baby shower was real. But you're right, especially knowing how the sequence ends, where she at some point calls Helen Bishop, and she was always going to call Helen Bishop. Knowing that, yeah, changes the tenor of of what you're seeing. But there's no. No denying that scene of the two of them sitting there like little little fifties teenagers <laughs> sucking straws, yeah, sucking on straws at the at the at Ralph's diner, <laughs> basically. But 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 that's part of the head fake, right? Because everything about this relationship that we've seen it through Betty's eyes has been this sort of semi inappropriate, semi whose role or is playing by who kind of thing. Whereas this, again, if you play it back again from the standpoint that, no, 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 Betty's not deluding herself here. Perhaps she was in the past. That's right. Everything we've seen has been her- Betty being inappropriate. Inappropriate, switching roles, not playing the role that she ought to, uh, uh, weirdness. Whereas now you play it back, you go, no, 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 she's actually playing it straight the whole time and appropriate. And she was always going to call his mother- I mean, she wasn't going to run away with him and she wasn't going to keep him. So there weren't that many options, you know. But the beautiful acting by January Jones of the look on her face and how she's playing along and genuinely enjoying it, but not deluding herself. You know, that exchange when Helen comes and picks up Glenn. Well, that's that's the scene, man. Well, that's the reality coming down hard, but that's kind of like divorce, right? I mean, here's her little man coming home, the dream coming home. That instead of deluding herself the way she did with Don for however many years, she knew the minute he came in that this thing wasn't going to work. So she'd been prepared for it. So when he says, I hate you, she says, I know. I, I know what this is. I- I've-, I've already, I've been, I've been mm. feeling this thing all along. Um, mm. I know you hate me. I'm sorry, but you're still going. We're still getting divorced. It's great. Dan, that's great. And he's the little man, you know, but he's, but he's, he represents something obviously a lot larger to her. And that final scene when Helen comes back. Yeah, there's a whole denouement to that. It reminds me of the first time Helen came over. Mm. Helen came over under the pretense of maybe, maybe it wasn't pretense, but you know, you go back last season, Helen comes over to apologize for the confrontation with that Betty experienced with her husband. And it, and they end up commiserating, having yeah. a drink together, having a cup of coffee together, kind of really bonding. But Betty's always also, you know, kept her at arm's well, length. She was the outcast. Helen was the outcast at that point. Betty in this scene is honest first with Helen, first with like, you are a shitty mom, you this, you that. We've never seen Betty. That's right. We've seen Betty play all these games with the neighbors and the friends and about and the we. I gossip, but I don't gossip, but I. Certainly, deflection. Certainly, don't say anything directly to anyone. But then the next moment is Don's not here. That is a big pinprick into this whole thing. I mean, she she has now told another human being and a human being who's not going to coddle her and be like, "It's going to be okay." A human being is going to be like, "Oh yeah, doesn't that suck?" And and the line uh, that she says is, "For me, it wasn't that different without him there." That's really informing Betty. Like, oh, 
you know, you're the one holding all the responsibility now. The hardest part is realizing you're in control. That's right. You know, toward the beginning, you've got Betty saying, God, you know, I've been dreaming about a suitcase. Mm. So there's your dream theme set up from the beginning. And then here, Betty says, sometimes I feel like I'll float away if Don isn't holding me down. And that's something. And again, dreaming and floating. And well, the next thing we see (laughs) is Don floating off into the clouds. With the sun brightening his face. I mean, here's a guy who needed to get a little vitamin D, (laughs) you know, that's, that's not a euphemism for vitamin Don. That means actual vitamin D, (laughs) sunshine. And, and some, and some metaphorical vitamin D, like, Don has been in all these dank places for as long as we've seen him. You know, a little geographical cure won't doesn't hurt anyone. But it's a great, you know, bridge to to this idea that and we don't know at this point what we're going to see in the next episode, right? We we know it's called the jet set, but there's no <laughs> there's absolutely nothing to 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 hint at really what what comes of this trip or whether we're going to even, you know, see any of it, frankly. So just the idea of Don being on that plane feels like feels like a great segue to something. This whole episode feels like one big dream and one big segue. But I, but but for the record, I'm Pete with the with the sleeping blinds <laughs> on, you know, completely knocked out on Dramamine or something. I'm not a great flyer. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just not. I can't I can't sleep. I can't sleep at all. I can't sleep a minute. Yeah. And anyway. All right, let's uh Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with the quotes. Dan Jasper, what is your quote? Paul Kinsey and these these poor people on the bus that he's now stuck on, the Freedom Ride bus, who've (laughs) suffered presumably enough in their lives, now are stuck on a bus from, you know, Columbia, South Carolina to uh, Jackson, Mississippi or something with Paul Kinsey. And he's now expounding on advertising, if anything, helps bring on change. The market, and I'm talking purely to Marxist sets, dictates that we include everyone. Consumer has no color. Consumer has no color. He says to them. So, you know, this fucking blowhard now is, they're stuck on the bus with this guy. And they're just like, they're just like, when, when's the next firebombing? Can we possibly get firebombed sooner than later? Because before the next exit, I got to I gotta end this. It was like the scene on Airplane where that the, the Japanese guy commits Harry Carey listening to to uh, Ted, Ted Stryker <laughs> on Airplane. That's what that that's how I imagine this group of um, well-meaning freedom riders. Paul Kinsey waxing caucastic. I mean, it was just... <laughs> Oh, my God. This is great. Your quote. So Peggy's really trying to stay in the conversation with Pete, like, and trying to sort of follow along and give him what he needs while backing away. And statistically speaking, it's very unlikely that it will happen to two people in one family. (laughs) Just, it's just so Peggy. Well, it's also, it's also Peggy trying to appeal to Pete's (laughs) twisted logic. I mean, it reminds me of, of you know, right, the world according to Garp, right? When the plane crashes into the house and well, it's pre-disastered. <laughs> but basically, I mean, she's a, she's a, for somebody who's so created, she's also very grounded in, in 
statistics and truth and well, she's reality. hanging off with your life in this conversation is what but she's doing. But she really wants, you know. <laughs> anyway, I just think it's lovely. I just think I, I heard it and I was like, that is just. She's like, is that the elevator? I got it. <laughs> so, Peggy, statistically speaking, it's very unlikely that it will happen to two people in one family. Is really the nicest way possible to to say, calm the fuck down, Peggy. Yeah. Why? Why are we? Why are we having Can this we, conversation? What, get, Okay. All right, sweetie. All right. Poor Pete's got to fly. It's about Pete. It's not about being triggered about the loss of his father. It's about I might die too. Okay. I'm not afraid though. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so that's the inheritance. It's disjointed. It's fucked up. And so are we. Fucked out. And uh, it's, yet- My brain is broken. Strangely enjoyable, useful, informative. What? Helpful without being insouciant. <laughs> Fine wine. Please. <laughs> trying to think of how you'd describe oh, a wine. Oh, fragrant. Fragrant, but not insouciant. I like to say insouciant. Jet set next week. Jet set, everybody. That's one that when I'm not engaged in a podcast and I say, oh, let's just watch a random episode of it, I will put on jet set. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. One word, one word, one word about Jet Set. Oslo. Till next week, people. We'll see you next time. Hey, Coiners. We're so glad you're enjoying the show. Please give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and share us on social media. If you'd like to support us, we are at patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Our members get extras and outtakes. We love hearing from you. And yet, we've been giving you the wrong email address. Reach us at questions at theycoinditpod.com. Hang with us on Twitter and Instagram, TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got so much more Mad Men to get to and more special guests. We're looking forward to all of it with you. See you next episode.